what we'll just do now is open it up to you for about uh, approximately half an hour. And uh, I'll just take them in batches of three. Um, we have Jonathan, we have one at the back. Anyone else? Okay, we'll start with you two then. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, my name's Jonathan Paris. Uh, I, I guess, uh, real quickly, if I can, I'll try to be quick, and I have to leave, I apologize. Uh, but um, I think that what you've done in this book, and what, Eric, you've been doing, is you've brought in this concept of ethnicity in the whole wider study of political and economic systems. I studied political and economic systems at Yale in, in the 70s, and I was always troubled with, with truly the founder of political science, uh, Robert Dow and, and Ed Lindblom, uh, that they ignored, they ignored ethnicity. And it, it was totally contrary to my, to my background at the time. I had been 12 years old when I went to Israel in 1966 when there was this concept of pan-Arab nationalism. It was about Nasser uh, and, and spreading across countries, and I became fascinated with that aspect. So let me just suggest the power of ethnicity in predicting the future. I would argue that uh, Israel-Palestine conflict is much, much different now. Mohammed Mahathir, who was the president of Malaysia, had a conference in the early 80s. It was right after Israel uh, invaded Lebanon and destroyed the Syrian Air Force. And he, he had a conference of Muslims to understand why 12 million Jews were so powerful against 1.5 billion Muslims. And I said to myself, uh-oh, it's no longer a political conflict between Israel and Palestine. It's now a religious conflict. Fast forward to 2015, and we have this sectarian conflict between Shia and Sunni going on right now in Yemen. We have this wider uh, British Muslim population, which is more Palestinian than the Palestinians. And we have Moshe Bugi Yalom, the defense minister of Israel, going to India, a Hindu, largely Hindu country, making strategic alliances. I think what you've done in this book is to help us understand the importance of ethnicity and religion in understanding political and economic <clears throat> systems. And I think there's so much that we can do with this to forecast the future. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, and Will, at the back of you. So, um, one thing you didn't touch on was um, intermarriage. And there's one case historically where this would be an example of, say, hard. So, no, intermarriage, yeah, there's, um, there was one case where it could be an example of hard engineering in uh, Ming China when the policy was to force Huai uh, Muslims and Han Chinese to marry. So, you couldn't marry, if you were Huai, you couldn't marry another Huai, you had to marry a Han. And I was wondering if there were, that's the only example I know of, of sort of hard intermarriage engineering, wonder if you knew of any others historically. Shall I reply to those two? Well, yeah, why don't you start with those, yes. uh, and then we'll collect another. Okay, well, first of all, um, Dean, thank you very much, and indeed, <coughs> I don't know whether it occurred to you when you were speaking, were it not for religion, we would never have met. Um, <laughs> but that's another story. Um, in terms of the power of ethnicity um, and religion, and Jonathan's gone, um, I think you can spend a lot of time uh, uh, defining how many uh, pinheads an angel can dance on or how many angels can dance on a pinhead, perhaps, around um, the distinction between the two. And I think every case is different. Uh, there's a lot of theory on this subject, and it tends to get quite bogged down. 
Um, I think the situation does change. I think the uh, I, I tend to agree with Dean that religious intensity has an impact on the intensity of a conflict. And I tend to think that it is somewhat naive to imagine that behind all the trouble we're seeing in the Middle East today between Sunni and Shia, this really has nothing to do with uh, 5th, 6th, 7th century distinctions. I think, I think those uh, distinctions are, are important because they determine what people believe and what people believe often drives what they do. So uh, whilst not wanting to um, draw any sort of large-scale theories or definitions around the distinction between religion and ethnicity, they're obviously very often closely bound up. Uh, often the most virulent exponents of an ethnic identity, even one that relies on religion, are not religious themselves, but nevertheless, like Dean, I feel it creates an environment uh, which often impacts uh, the intensity with which the conflict is pursued. Um, I think your point on intermarriage is very interesting. Um, that is one uh, forced intermarriage. I mean, intermarriage itself, as a phenomenon, can, as an, uh, a phenomenon that just happens um, spontaneously, can be seen as a, a shift in ethnic boundaries. Indeed, and the intensity of a group to marry within itself is a measure of its uh, of its sense of itself and its. Uh, um, perhaps of its uh, longevity as, a, as an identity. Forced intermarriage is not something that I've come across, and I'm interested by the case of China. Um, some people would, in, would interpret, I have discussed with some people, that the uh, mass rapes in uh, the Balkans were some form of demographic engineering. I, I, I'm dubious of that because I think the woman who is left with the child will most generally bring the child up in her own tradition. And uh, I'm not enough of a perennialist to believe that uh, the genes in the child will matter. The child is brought up in a particular tradition. The child will belong to that tradition. Uh, yeah, we've got a couple. By the way, just very quickly, uh, Alexander the Great did encourage the Greeks to marry the Persians. That was one thing. Anyway, uh, one, two, and three. So we'll go ahead. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, in the case studies that uh, you were working on, uh, you were talking about the phenomena where if there's a high birth rate um, other ethnic groups may experience a similar rise. Uh, how did you find popular perceptions of birth rates and demographic change came about? Was that uh, often through the press or just by what people saw in their communities with, um, with other groups? Okay, we'll take a couple more. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm curious about one political solution to these types of conflicts that seems to be extremely out of fashion, and that's redrawing boundaries between nations. And I'd be interested in your views on the merits and demerits of, uh, of that. Um, I'm thinking, in particular in the current conflicts we're seeing, uh, Ukraine, uh, maybe Cyprus to be provocative, perhaps Belgium. Um, th there is no political impetus or enthusiasm in the international community to see um, boundaries redrawn. I'd be interested in your views. Yeah, it's been terrific to hear about this um, really amazing framework of analysis. I was just wondering if um, I actually work in the private sector for a sort of country risk unit of an American information company. I was just wondering whether you've seen this framework of analysis applied to, for example, partition, India-Pakistan, or the Great Lakes region, Congo, Rwanda, Singapore, Malaysia, or Kenya. It's all these very complicated um, areas often British decolonization. Just wondering if, if you've seen that applied already uh, academically or, or seen that in the offing. Okay, well, yeah. you want to take this? 
Certainly. Um, perceptions of birth rates, I think, is very interesting. And uh, it, it, at some point, I wanted to talk about that quite extensively in my book. There's very little material on it. But I can give you one anecdote, which is that when I um, met an academic in Israel in 2008-9 and said, you do realise the Palestinian birth rates falling very rapidly and the Jewish birth rates rising. This was a, uh, a, someone who's actually had a, a political... Um, science job at one of the major universities, he had no idea. He said, write an article for Haaretz. So I just wrote an article for Haaretz, which is the leading Israeli paper in English, Hebrew version, English version, sent it along, and they said, oh, that's interesting, we'll publish it, which I thought was extraordinary, because this was actually quite easily available data. So I think one thing that is interesting is that perceptions lack, and I think only now are perceptions in Israel changing and are people starting to realise that the uh, birth rates have converged, and I think there is still a lot of uh, demographic pessimism among the Northern Irish Protestants. And actually, if you look carefully at the census data, two things are striking. One is the fall in the number of people identifying as Catholics between the last two censuses. And the other is actually, if you look at the age group by religion, and obviously for the younger groups, it's defined by their parents, each cohort, the Catholics, is declining. So I think, and that is not something that if you ask the ordinary man on the street, or even the political scientists in Northern Ireland, I think they understand. So I think there's probably some work to be done on there. And of course, perceptions and reality inevitably uh, interact. Um, redrawing of boundaries, I think that's a fascinating topic, and I have a rather cynical view of that, which is simply the boundaries stick, um, but they become less and less meaningful. And sometimes when I'm in bed and I can't get to sleep, I try and count up all the places where the boundaries are totally insignificant. If you look at a map of Syria today, or Iraq today, or Moldova today, uh, or many other places, the Ukraine, you know, what we see on the map is what the international community recognises as reality. And the gap between what the international community is prepared to recognise as reality and reality is less and less, uh, fits less and less. We might think, well, that's always been that case. Actually, it hasn't. If you look around the Arab world, 20, 30 years ago, every state had a central controlling function. And now, what does Damascus control? What does Baghdad control? What does Benghazi or Tripoli control? Southern Lebanon is not in the control of the Lebanese government. And you can, case after case, it's interesting, not, not, not so much in the Americas, but case after case, certainly in the Middle East, certainly in the Balkans, if we think about Bosnia, the, the international community has decided Bosnia will be a solid state, it will be a single state, it will be on the map as a state. But if decisions get taken in Sarajevo, they will have very little effect in the Serbian parts, effectively in <coughs> two countries. And I think case after case... Uh, the world is very scared to change frontiers because there is a feeling, understandably, that this will give rise to endless wars of borders. And so the borders stick. What is recognised as the borders internationally stick. But that doesn't stop reality on the ground changing. Um, the third point about uh, partition, the Great Lakes, I think there are... I haven't seen a great deal of work on, on the subject. There is one other book about... There are two other books on demographic engineering and one article. That's essentially the... Um, uh, literature to date. None of them uh, deals, I think, with any of the... There is some talk of the partition in India. One interesting case I would mention in India, it's not really the partition, is that there has been a suggestion in the state of Punjab. So the state of Punjab has a Sikh, had a Sikh minority, and the state was re redrawn in order to create a Sikh 
majority. So there was Haryana and Himachal Pradesh were created. And it has been suggested that in censuses, people were saying they were Hindi speakers rather than Punjabi speakers in order to make it clear that they were Hindus and to diminish the number of uh, Sikhs and therefore possibly to change the boundaries, the internal boundaries in India. Um, but I think there's a lot of work to be done. I think what's interesting about demographic engineering is that wherever you shine the light, uh, something seems to be hidden under a rock. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Thank you, that was uh, very interesting. Two very brief interrelated questions. Um, you talked about demography and ethnic conflict. Why, why in particular did you choose to focus on demography and ethnic conflict <coughs> rather than another type of conflict? And related to that, how on earth do you begin to distinguish between ethnic conflict and non-ethnic conflict? It seems to me a virtually impossible task. Okay, good. Did we have... Uh, so go ahead, Rohan. Yeah. And yeah, I was uh, wondering whether you dealt uh, with the issue of gerrymandering local authority borders, constituencies, because uh, I know in Sri Lanka in 1987, uh, the, the, the policies of the government there were described as, as gerrymandering and to move Tamils out of areas that were in disputes and using the upcoming local elections as a means of uh, reordering control over particular areas. Okay, well, just, I think this is, no one else, okay. <coughs> why don't you uh, address those two? Okay, first of all, the, um, again, I don't really want to get, to get into a, a theological discussion on what is ethnicity and what isn't, I think that itself is a huge literature, um, but we can certainly look at conflicts that are not ethnic conflicts, so for example, the Cold War was not an ethnic conflict, um, you can have a class conflict, which is not an ethnic conflict. The reason I think demography is particularly interesting in the context of ethnicity and ethnic conflicts is that fertility behaviour and migration behaviour often follows a particular ethnic pattern. Now, if I never heard a Marxist say the secret to the revolution is to have more proletarian babies. I mean, the Marxists always thought that the proletariat had numbers on their side anyway. So in a class conflict, and besides, people are more socially mobile, it might be argued, than ethnically mobile, arguable. So I've never, I've never seen a, policy, a, a dem demographic policy which you could really say is one of class conflict. Um, you can have interstate conflict, and there it can be asked, are the states essentially ethnic? And therefore, is it ethnic conflict? And again, that's a definitional point. Certainly states want, have traditionally wanted large populations. Um, in order to uh, have, be able to field larger armies on the battlefield. Um, so I, that probably doesn't satisfactorily answer your question, but I do have some consideration in the book about, about the, the nature of ethnicity, what is an ethnic conflict, and why ethnic conflicts become <coughs> I think demographic engineering more naturally fits in, in, in ethnic conflict because fertility, at least, is more uh, ethnic than, than running along other lines. And I think it's become increasingly important because there's a strong argument to say that the conflict we see in the world today is increasingly of an ethnic nature, however defined. It has been defined. There have been studies uh, that look at conflicts or deaths in conflicts since the 50s and say that the inter, inter, interstate, normally ethnic conflicts, as opposed to the, in, the intrastate, as opposed to the interstate, uh, has taken off and that almost all conflicts today, and it's quite true, the days of country X declaring war on country Y are far and few between. Uh, the, the, state, the situation such as Syria and Iraq, where you have some sort of internal breakdown and some sort of conflict, which I think is essentially ethnic or sectarian in nature, are more and more common. And that's another reason I think that demographic engineering matters more. 
Gerrymandering is another subject which has been raised. I think it's quite um, important to distinguish between two things. If you draw the constituency boundaries in order to gerrymander and you don't move anybody, that is a subversion of democracy. That is a subversion of demography. It's finding a way around it. I wouldn't say it was demographic engineering. I would say it is a subversion of the democratic system. If you actually move people, as I mentioned in Sri Lanka, if you actually settle people into particular areas, either for political reasons because of constituencies, and one thinks of Shirley Porter, actually, those of us who remember, that would be perhaps a case of, a case of class demographic engineering. Or, um, in the case of Sri Lanka, specifically because there are strategic positions which would block a contiguous Tamil state, then I would say that was demographic engineering, yes. <coughs> Is there anyone else? Did you want to? Yes. Yeah. Um, I just want to ask whether you did come across um, different policies of uh, different examples of, of uh, demographic engineering uh, between mainland Israel and occupied territories uh, concerning mainly uh, population of settlers, or whether there there is not huge variation if there was. Well, I think they are two different issues. Um, Israel has been concerned about the solidity of the Jewish minority majority within uh, pre-1967 Israel. That they have been very, uh, they've been very careful to not to have discriminatory uh, fertility policies. Uh, there were extra benefits for army veterans, um, and very often Arabs didn't serve in the army, and most Jews did. And there, were, there have been some some claims that. Um, Jews who didn't serve in the army got the benefits anyway. They didn't last for terribly long. They weren't very great, and they've been finished with. So there's a, um, a very interesting quotation uh, from a lady called Rebecca Steinfeld, who's done some work on this, uh, that Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, said very specifically, we cannot have discriminatory fertility policies. We cannot encourage Jews and not Arabs to have children. We must be impartial. What the third sector does is up to them. Anything like that must happen through the informal sector. Um, so that's within Israel, and I think the, the policies have been quite uh, fair between the, the, two, the two communities. Uh, clearly, there have been efforts to settle Jews in places like the Galilee, and you could say that's a form of demographic engineering, although clearly they were fairly empty and in need of uh, habitation, and there were people coming into the country. Um, on the West Bank uh, and Gaza, clearly the positions are completely different. Whether Israel wishes to absorb the West Bank or not is a, a matter of debate within Israel. Um, some have, certainly the, the, the actual settlement strategies have been different. The Labour Party, which traditionally had actually started the settlements, started it in unoccupied areas in the, in the Jordan Valley, hoping under the Alon plan to possibly absorb the less populated areas. Um, those settlements that started in the 70s under right-wing governments have been more located in places of historic uh, religious uh, significance or possibly quite uh, um, demonstrably in areas of, of populated uh, by Palestinians. And obviously the Gaza Strip has been a very different case again uh, with a really half-hearted effort to uh, settle it. In fact, uh, Arnon Sofer, who uh, Dean mentioned and who I met, said that he pointed out to Sharon that the total birth rate, uh, the births in, in in Gaza in a few months was the size of the Jewish settlement there in, in the sort of in the late 80s, early 90s. So um, I think each case has been somewhat different. 
Got a couple of questions here. Yeah, we have a few more minutes. Probably these might have to be the last two, so go ahead. Yeah. So you touched upon the, the issue of nationalism earlier in the talk. So I'm wondering what role do you think the demographic engineering had in, in the rise of nations? And uh, especially, I think, what you call the hard demographic engineering maybe has received more attention uh, in, in the sense of ethnic cleansing when you have Controversial, uh, controversial work of, uh, of Michael Mann on that, but uh, soft engineering maybe not so much. I think uh, Benedict Anderson in his revised version of Imagine Community does include censuses and maps as, uh, as ways in which nations are, are created, but I don't think he develops much in that. And um, So what role would you say that demographic engineering had in, in, in the creation of nations? And is demographic engineering also a modern phenomenon? or do we see that before the rise of, of nations? Okay. okay. You mentioned earlier on um, about the power of a majority and how a majority is helpful in controlling population, but, um, and you gave the example of America, of Western imperialism, that's the rest of the world. But is that really the case that the majority is actually powerful, that a majority is actually useful, or is it a case that, um, a well-organized and well-structured minority who is skillful in the art of demographic engineering is is the triumphant party rather than a majority and numbers are really irrelevant. <laughs> okay. Okay, to answer those, I mean, I haven't really got time to go into Michael Mann in any detail. I mean, the, just for people's benefit, the basic theory is the pre-modern state, however defined, is not ethnic. It has a ruling caste. They don't really care who the peasants are as long as they create some kind of surplus that keeps the thing going. It, it's modernity. It's the dark side of democracy, as Mann calls it, that has created this ethnicity. Um, is that really the case? Um, well, I, our mutual friend Anthony Smith, who's a great theorist, so we, we have had many discussions on the subject of when is the nation, one of his favourite topics. I don't really want to get drawn into that, but I would say somewhere in my book, I wish I could find it, I have a, my, 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 my oldest, uh, my quotation from my oldest source is actually from the book of Exodus where King Pharaoh is, or the, the Pharaoh of Egypt, is fretting over the rise of uh, all those Jewish babies. So, in, you know, there's certainly some evidence in the Bible that it could be a pre-modern uh, phenomenon. Um, does, do numbers matter? I, I think you're absolutely right to be critical and to say they don't always matter. And I think I try to make that case. I am not saying, I mean, I provocatively started my book um, with this kind of phony Marxian, Marxian quotation, all history is the history of ethnic conflict. And in ethnic conflict, numbers always count. And then, of course, I rubbish, rubbish that to some, to some extent. Um, I just think numbers count. You know, they are not the only thing. I think they do matter in many conflict situations um, because of boots on the ground, because the bigger tribe normally wins the battle. They have often in history been in, insignificant. When one side gets a technolo technological advance, advantage, we have got the Maxim gum and they have not. Britain would not. The whole European expansion into the world was based on a uh, huge technological advantage. But once those technological advantages go, uh, and once you get into a, an era of, de era of demo democratic legitimacy, then I think numbers count more. They'll never be everything, but I think they're actually more and more important as democracy spreads, and it's harder and harder for minorities to justify their control over majorities. Well, thank you, Paul, for very good answers. Uh, thanks very much. Um,
just say two things. One is that copies of the book are at the back, and Paul will, I think, be good enough to sign for those who, who wish to. Um, and also, we're going to have a reception. But before we do that, um, uh, Paul's publisher wants to come up and just say a few words. So, uh, <coughs> you just want to speak to that thing, just very briefly, um, I really just want to say thank you to Paul. Um, it was a real pleasure working with him on this book, and we're just delighted to have it in our International Population Studies series. Um, and also thank you to the series editor, Professor Phil Reese at Leeds University, um, for his help with the book as well. And finally to Paul's daughter for the cover art as well, <laughs> and to mention that. Um, books are on sale at uh, better than half price, £30, so come and see me or I can take orders. Thank you. Thanks very much. Okay.